Well, church family, if you can find your ways back to your seats. Two minutes goes really fast if you're trying to greet people. So as you find your way back to your seats, um, my name is Greg. I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and whether you're here with us here in the sanctuary or whether you're at home watching us online, thank you for joining with us today. We've been in a series together, James series, and our series is called James, A Practical Guide to Living by Faith. And so this is going to be a very, 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 very practical book. And so there's going to be a lot of times to be kind of challenged and convicted and, and uh, like areas that you haven't thought about in a while, or perhaps maybe you, you think everything's fine. But, you know, James has a way of just kind of stirring us again and saying, no, you could go a little further. There's more to grow in this area. So I think this will be one of those as well for us today. Our text is James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I want to read that to you at this time. And our title of our service, uh, of our message is True Religion. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Let's pray. Lord, as we, as Katie mentioned earlier, you know, every one of us comes here individually, uniquely, in a different mindset, a different perspective. And some of us know that we are in desperate need of change and growth, and we need to have our minds illuminated, and we need you to take away the, the fog that is before our eyes. Others of us have come hungry to experience your grace, your truth, your forgiveness, your mercy. Some of us, I fear, come satisfied. And like the Pharisee who said, I thank you that I'm, I, I'm glad that I'm not like other men, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast, I give tithes. Lord, don't let us come thinking that we've arrived or that we're, there's not more that you want to do in our lives. Help us be like the tax collector who beat his breast and said, be merciful to me, God, I'm a sinner. Lord, help us because of your grace, because we know that we're secure in your love, because we know that there's acceptance for us even in our failings, Lord, you've brought us into your family. You've secured us by the blood of your son, Jesus. And you've given us this privilege to learn from your holy word how we can conduct ourselves in a way that brings more joy and pleasing to you. So, Lord, guide our time. Help me to speak clearly. Help me to speak consistent with your truth. Help us to have ears to hear. Transform us, we pray, by your love, your mercy, and the power of your, of your gospel in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Perhaps you were stunned or moved as I was this last Friday uh, with some news that just came out on Friday. It says this, if we could turn our slide. 
It's with a heavy heart that I write to inform you that Presbyterian Redeemer, Presbyterian Church founder and longtime pastor Tim Keller passed away this morning at age 72, trusting in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. Tim Keller is the founding pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in uh, the heart of New York City, growing now to over 5,000 people in attendance. And he was initially diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer three years ago in May of 2020. Keller was an American Reformed pastor, theologian, and Christian apologist. He was the chairman and co-founder of Redeemer City to City, which trains pastors for service around the world, especially in trying to reach the unreached people of our urban areas. Michael, his son, posted on Friday, Dad waited until he was alone with Mom. She kissed him on the forehead, and he breathed his last breath. We take comfort in some of his last words. He said, there's no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. He was ready, ready to go home. Christianity Today said, Tim Keller's influence can be seen and felt across evangelicalism today. He inspired many Christians to re-engage with cities, put energy and resources into church planting, and find ways to communicate the gospel clearly and kindly. He was a model, winsome, apologetic. Some of his best-selling books, and actually, I'm not a huge, huge reader. I wish I read more, but I think I've read all these. (laughs) Some of his books that he wrote were The Reason for God, The Meaning of Marriage, Prayer, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, Counterfeit Gods, Prodigal God, Center Church, and Generous Justice. I would commend any opportunity you get to hear Tim Keller on any podcast or anything he's written. Uh, he was a unique voice to our, to our time. Some said he was like the C.S. Lewis of our time. But concerning his passion for the vulnerable and for the poor... He had strong words for the people who do not care about the poor. He said, all I know is this, if I don't care about the poor, if my church doesn't care about the poor, that's evil. Helping the least of these should be every Christian's mission. From Generous Justice, his book, he said this, he said this was his aim for his religion. He said, it's not just legal justice, But his intent was the blessing of New York City in every aspect, physically, socially, culturally, spiritually. That's what Redeemer Presbyterian Church was thinking about when they think about their religion. And that's what I think we're going to be looking at as we look at James' text for us today. The big idea for our time is this. Religion that is trustworthy is pure and undefiled. Religion that is worthy, I'm sorry, is pure and undefiled. You know, when James uses this word religion, he's not, he's not, he's taking a word that was used across many different kinds of religious uh, groups, not just Christian groups. 
A lot of times when we think about the word religion, we kind of have a pretty negative opinion about what religion is all about because religion we usually think of in terms of its, its most kind of just going through the motions of our Christian life. But religion was used widely and was also used by uh, the writers of the New Testament to some degree. And the focus was on the outward acts of your faith. James doesn't try in this little verse that we have, in these two verses that we have here, he's not trying to fully define what religion is. He's not trying to give us a full list, but a representative one, and to give us a test for our worship, to see if we really got it, if what's going on inside of us is really expressing itself outwardly the way it should if, if our heart is right. So he's going to tell us about what worship should look like. But first of all, we have three points. We're going to look at what, when religious Excuse me, when religion is worthless. And actually, we're going to look at three different points. Ritual and performance, half-heartedness, and unconcerned inaction. So let's look at the first point, ritual and performance. In Matthew chapter 15, verses 8 and 9, it says this. Jesus speaking to the people, he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He said that they're saying the right words, they're singing the songs, they're reading the readings, but their heart isn't in it. Their heart is far from me. It's a ritual to you, it's performance. And he goes on in verse 9, he says, In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. In vain do they worship me. They, it's empty. It's showy. It's routine. You're going through the motions. And unfortunately, I mean, I find my name right there with some of these things. Is sometimes it's very easy just to kind of just read the words, sing the songs, say the creeds. And yet, my heart's not engaged in that time. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7, it says this, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. I put in my time praying. I had my quiet time. I, I participated. I come on Sundays. But does that count? as worship, because it said in the verse before that, it says, in vain they worship me. It's, it's empty. It's worthless. It doesn't really, it doesn't register in God's heart and mind as this really was your worship to me. And so religion can be ritual and performance, and secondly, it can be half-hearted effort. When writing to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul said, whatever you do, work heartily. Some translation says, work with all your heart, wholeheartedly, as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So whether it's a context like this, 
whether it's a, a ministry responsibility you might have, maybe it's your job, maybe it's your chores at home, maybe it's your teaching of your kids. Whatever you do, he says, do it heartily as for the Lord and not for men. It's the Lord Christ that you're serving. And so religion is, that is worthless is a half-hearted response. A half-hearted response. Back in the Old Testament, uh, there were people who did, uh, King Saul did most of what he was told to do, but he kind of held back on a killing of a king and the keeping of some of the sheep. And he said, I have obeyed the Lord. I did. And the prophet said, you know, what is this bleeding the sheep that I hear in my ear? Half-heartedness is not, is not the way that God would have us express our religion outwardly or show our lives, that our lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ. In the end time, the Apostle John, speaking to the Laodiceans, said in Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 to 17, he says, I know your works, so you're neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Somehow we think that lukewarmness is okay. When, when we ask one another, How, how's it going? How's, how's your time with God going? It's, it's, go, it's okay. It's pretty good. And God says, no, that's not good. That's not good. Because if it's cold toward me, I can really convict you. Because you know you're, you're in disobedience. And your example is not anything that anybody's going to follow if you're in rebellion against me. But lukewarmness, he said, I can't use that. I, I just, that's disgusting. I just want to spew that out of my mouth. And so religion that's worthless is kind of a half-hearted response to the things God calls us to. So religion that's worthless is it's, it's ritual, it's performance, it's half-heartedness, and it's unconcerned inaction. Again, picture Jesus at the end of time, and this is at the judgment, and this is from Matthew chapter 25, when Jesus is talking about the very end of time, and he's actually talking about separating it out the people who are there, the people who are believers, people who are not believers. But look how he talks about the non-believers. Look how he talks about them as he speaks to the goats, the shepherd speaking to the goats. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me, naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will say, answer saying, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and not minister to you? Then he will say, 
he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to the least of these, you did not do it to me. And again, we're not saying you go to heaven based on your works. But this is the characteristic of people who don't know God, who have not put their hope and faith in Jesus Christ. And so that, that standard is worthless. It's not representative of the heart of our Savior or of our God. So, <clears throat> by the way, if you're feeling convicted like I am, sorry. <laughs> there is grace coming. There is hope. So religion that is worthless. And then he kind of... Ref- he, he, he contrasts that with religion that is worthy. Again, in James chapter 1, verse 26, 27, it says, If anyone does not bridle his tongue, and it goes on, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So this first one here, and we're going to look at three pieces here, the bridle the tongue, care for the vulnerable, and unstained by the world. So we're going to talk about bridling the tongue first. Now think about this. You know, a bridle, you know, you, you put that in the horse's mouth, and that keeps him under control. You, you can stop him. You can turn him. You can redirect him. And so it says that in one sense, we're supposed to be bridling our tongue. And this, is, this speech thing is something that James just keeps, keeps coming back to. So I, I never do an exhaustive piece on, on the tongue here because James, got, you know, we got it two, two weeks ago, you know, and we're going to see it again in chapter 3, the whole section, on, and then there's going to be another section in chapter 4. So if we don't get you this time around, we're going to keep talking to you about it, James says. You know, we're going to keep addressing that tongue. But Psalm 39, verse 1 says, I said, I will guard my ways that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle. I'll guard it with a muzzle. I'm going to put a muzzle on my mouth so I stop doing, you know, saying things. How do you control your tongue? You know what? We'll see coming up in the next weeks. You can't. You can't. But Jesus does give us some insight as to how we deal with a, our tongue. And he gave us to that in Luke chapter 6, verses 44, 45, saying this. He says, Each tree is known by its own fruit, for figs are not gathered from thorn bushes or grapes picked from bramble bush. So this is talking about the context. As Christians, our speech matters. There should be gracious speech. There should be truthful speech. There should be upbuilding speech. There should be encouraging speech. There should be all these things. And so he said, you know, your, your speech should be different. But he goes on, he says in verse 45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. That's our key. How do we, how do we guard our, our, our speech? How do we bridle our tongue? We aim at the heart. 
and we fill the heart with truth and good, and good uh, language and things that are worthy to be said and done. But that also brings us to the gospel because in order for the desire and the power to do these things, we need to be transformed, first of all, from the inside. We're not just trying to clean up our outside. We know that the heart is transformed because of the power of the gospel in our lives and our faith in Jesus Christ. That once we realize that we fall short and we miss God's mark and we're never going to be, we're never going to be earning uh, salvation on the basis of our works, we can come to the place where we say, I need a Savior. Jesus, I need you to save me. Because you lived a perfect life, because you never sinned, because you offered to be my substitute, because you offered to die in my place, because you actually died on the cross for my sin and all my sin was placed on you because you were buried and you raised from the dead. I put my hope in you. I put my trust in you. I believe in you to be who you said you were, the one and only Savior of the world. And once we're born again, God begins to transform our hearts. He gives us a new heart. He puts his Holy Spirit within us. He begins to feed our mind by the Holy Spirit. He brings the word of God to us in a way that transforms our lives. He puts us in fellowship with other people who begin to help us to be transformed. And so our hearts are being transformed even in in a life, in a world that we will never be fully transformed until we see him. Religion that is worthy will bridle the tongue, but it also will care for the vulnerable. Throughout the Old Testament, the law states God's heart towards many different vulnerable peoples. But specifically in Psalm 68, verse 5, it says, God is a father to the fatherless and a protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God was so serious about this that many, many times throughout the law, he reiterated it over and over and over again for the people to realize that that was important to him. In fact, sometimes the prophets would actually rebuke the people because they weren't considering and taking care of those vulnerable people. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, it says, Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead, the widow's cause. James says that pure religion visits orphans and widows in their affliction. That's, that's what God's people are concerned about. He's concerned about those people. Now, we can take this, as I said, this is not a, an exhaustive list on what pure religion is. This is a representative list. <laughs> and so we can think through on our own, there are lots and lots of people who need our care and need our protection, who need our provision, who are helpless, who are vulnerable. And we as a church, I think, make an attempt to be a part of caring for those situations. For example, the unborn. As long as I've been in this church, and that's coming up on 
35 years or so, we've been concerned about the unborn, and we've been a regular contributor and sometimes serving directly with the Center for Pregnancy Concerns. And that's not just about the birth itself, but also the cares and the needs of those, of those, of those women who need help. The unborn and the moms, the poor. As a church, we've made it our policy to do everything that we can to make sure that um, anyone in need in this church is addressed. We try to do everything we can to, to address their need. If you notice that every time we do conferences, everything that we do, we, we do our best to make sure that nobody is left out. In our local community, we've been a part of the Helping Hands Food Pantry for, for many, many years. Again, I won't give you an exhaustive list, but I just want to give you a, a sense of what God has done through you by, your, by his grace in our lives. You know, the poor um, were involved with partnerships in the Baltimore City churches. I think you'll probably be hearing about Helping Hands, uh, not just Helping Hands, but the Helping Up mission again pretty soon because we're going to be looking for an opportunity to get involved again with that. Some inner city churches. But think about you know, the opportunity that we had with Malawi that I've mentioned earlier today. With prisoners, uh, as long as I can remember, 25 to 30 years, we've been involved with prison ministry through the angel tree. Uh, by God's grace, we've been able to, sell, to serve well over 100 kids uh, every year. Um, in, in one sense, helping those prisoners and, and what's dear to their heart, which is their family and their kids. Seniors can be very vulnerable. And in a scattered society where parents don't live with their kids when they get older, you know, when, when families are split up for various reasons and are moving to all kinds of the corners of this, of this country, you know, the church is the family. And by God's grace, we're learning more and more how to take care of seniors. And our deacons who serve us all have put together a team of people who are kind of spearheading, which we'll probably talk more about in the near future, uh, people who can actually meet very practical needs of our seniors and be, come alongside of them in their need. The vulnerable that we have in other ways, the, uh, for example, Araminta. We helped actually start the ministry that became that connected to Araminta for, for those who are trafficked in our, in our community, in our area here, and raised thousands and thousands of dollars and come alongside to serve in many ways for those who are, are being trafficked in our area. Ukraine, when Ukraine's battle uh, broke out, we were able to come alongside and help out some very specific situations of some in need, family members in need, and also pastors in need of operations and hospital expenses and so forth. We were able to come alongside those who are vulnerable. Venezuela. Venezuela has all kinds of needs that we've been able to be a, a little bit of a part of, but especially the Nathansons have been our, our, our primary focus for them is, is Venezuela. And the, the atrocities and the difficulties and the, the hunger and all the things that are going on in Venezuela, we've been able to come alongside them and help those who are, who are desperately in need of our prayers as well as our help. ESL. There are a lot of people who came here for various reasons to this country, but many of them feel alone, and many of them feel helpless, and many of them want a job, 
Many of them want some help in various practical ways, and so we as a church have come alongside them and helped them in many, in many various ways that we've been able to, to, to serve. Shout out to Becky Fox, who met with a woman for about a year to help her to pass her citizenship. Got her citizenship this last year. So thank you, Becky, for that. But the greatest need that we would see would be the spiritual need. Because the greatest poverty is the gospel. Our nation needs the gospel, and this world needs the gospel. And so it's because of the gospel we have this opportunity to, communi to communicate with many, many people, not only in this country, not only in our neighborhood, not only in our city, not only in our state, but to various areas of the world. And predominantly, most of our focus of our mission's money is to areas where the gospel is not preached. We're about ready to send someone very soon, and I won't mention it because it's on here, but to a Muslim nation and, uh, who will take the gospel to be in, in, that, in that location. We've been able to be partnering with local things as the FCA who, who are reaching out to our high school and, and uh, sports ministries. We've been able to do that for many, many, many years. We've been involved with China. We've been involved with India, again, in, in locations and places where there is not much gospel presence at all. And so we've been able to partner with them. Uh, I mentioned the seed ministry. I mentioned the, that, that brings the gospel, but puts the scriptures into the native languages of people groups. Uh, the, the Mexico uh, connection that we have with the Tatamara, a, a group of people who are on the unreached people group, and we've adopted that to be a part of that. Thailand, we have missionaries in Thailand, and that and where there's just a fraction of a percentage of Christianity that's kind of taken hold in those situations. God is doing a lot, and I am so grateful to be a part of a church, a generous church, a church that wants to be involved and is active in reaching out to the, uh, the, those in need, those who are desperately vulnerable. And yet there's more that we can do. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1, uh, the Apostle Paul, when he was commending, when he was commending his, that church and 1 Thessalonians, the Thessalonians there were, were amazing examples in their love and sacrifice. He said, finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And so we will not be content that we're doing all that we should do or all that we can do because I believe that God's heart is bigger than what we've even represented in these things. But thank you. Thank you, church, for what you're doing. Thank you for the, the part that you're playing in making an impact. And we even gave you a couple opportunities today. Please, please find a way to get involved with, with service, uh, with needy situations as I've even given you just a picture, a glimpse of what we're doing. Micah chapter 6, verse 3, a, a verse that's very well known from the Old Testament. Talking about the heart of God, he says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? That's what God wants. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. So we've talked about bridling the tongue. We've talked about caring for the vulnerable. Let's talk about being unstained by the world. 
1 John chapter 2, verses 15 and 6 says, 16 say, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. We live in a very, very difficult situation because we, we have three enemies. Our own flesh is fighting us to serve and worship God. Our own, our own remaining sin nature that's still in us wants to be lazy, wants to be selfish, wants to, wants to look out for itself predominantly. The lust of the flesh, all the things that we crave that really don't honor God at all. The lust of the eyes, the things that we see that we think we should have, the covetousness, that craving for those things, those things become idols in our life. The boastful pride of life, thinking that we really are okay, that we really don't need God, that we really are in good situation, that, that, that we're not dependent upon God, that we're not, as it said, blind and miserable. This world is not going to help us. And if you love the world and you love the things of the world, it says this, it says, God's love is not in you. So we're not going to be able to have a worthy religion if we're really living for something else. In fact, let me say this. If you're like me and you find yourself not very passionate for God, I think you probably need to, un you need to empty your pockets because you're holding on to some other kind of fool's gold. There's something else that you think is more valuable, more satisfying, more God-glorifying than that which God calls us to be and to do. And so if you find yourself told, toward, cold towards God, I would, I would imagine that you need, like I do, like you need a shower. We need to let the word of God just kind of wash over us again and show us where our mistaken thinking is. And let God cleanse you again. Let God reorient your mind and your heart to what's true and right and good. The desires of the flesh, the eyes, the pride, it's not from God. How do we change? Well, we talked about the gospel. The gospel and the word of God is going to be your hope. First, 2 Peter 1.14 says, By which he has granted us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in this world because of sinful desire. This is not neutral ground. This is not your ultimate home. You and I need to escape the corruption that's around us. We need to flee to Jesus. We need to find our hope and salvation in him. We will not be able to live the lives that we want to live in our own grace, in our own strength, but only by God's grace. And God wants to grow and change you. And how do we do that? That comes to our point number three. Religion fueled by wonder. Again, from James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So how do we do that? Well, first of all, our, our religion is before God. What we do and say, how we sing, how we act, how we don't act, first and foremost, you have an audience, and I have an audience of one. It's God. This is for God. Even when other people aren't around, this is for God. This is what, this is what God, this is what our, our offering of our lives is to him. And this is a holy God. This is a worthy God. This is an awesome God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 28 and 29 says this, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. If you think about God that way, God's a consuming fire. You know, when people came into the presence of God, they felt like they were dead. <laughs> he was so awesome. And I think that, you know, the last couple generations, we just wanted to make sure that we really had a personal relationship with Jesus. So we left some of that holiness stuff away. <laughs> so we weren't afraid of him. This is New Testament here. Let us offer God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. We, we, we probably get lazy in our religion, in our practice, because we, we, we think, well, God will forgive me. God loves me. Jesus paid for all my sin. Yes. But God is a consuming fire. And there should be a reverence and a holy fear, not a fear that drives us away, but a fear that purifies, that purges those lusts, those desires, those temporal values, those distractions. God, God wants to burn those things away because he's worthy, he is holy. The prophet Malachi addressed it like this, he said, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts. O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name by offering polluted food on my, upon my altar? But you say, how have we polluted you by saying that the Lord's table may not be despised? But you offer blind animals and sacrifice. Is that not evil? And when you offer those who are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Would he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? This is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. He said, you, you, what you give me is kind of the leftovers, kind of the pitiful, you know, not, not real honoring. You wouldn't, you wouldn't give that to your dad. You wouldn't give that to your king and governors. So I think that if we were to want to realign our religion and our response to God, there's a holy fear that I think that God would want to cultivate in us. But with that, he is God the Father, secondly. And Jesus put that in a way to, so that we could see it together. 
in, in Matthew 6, he said, Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Somehow, we're, he's both. Somehow, we, don't, we have a holy fear of him and an awe of him. And at the same time, he's our Father and we could run to him. And we don't need to be terrified that he won't accept us because that's where a robust understanding of what this gospel has done for you, brothers and sisters, will, will make the difference. Because if you don't understand that there's no condemnation for you, there's no only acceptance for you, that when you're in trouble and even when you sin, he's running to you. But don't treat him like he's not holy. And don't treat him like it doesn't matter. The Apostle Paul said, what should we say then? Should we sin all the more that grace might increase? Like, hey, it gets a lot of glory out of it when he gets to forgive you for more. And he said, God forbid. God forbid. How can we continue in sin? But he's a father to us. And though he has all kingdoms aligned and under him, we come to him eagerly, readily, and he cares for you. He knows you. He knows you by name. He, he will leave 99 to go after you when you're, when you're falling away. He will look everywhere he can to find you if you're like that lost coin. He'll be eagerly watching at the door to see the prodigal come back. Matthew 7 says, if, then, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do you ask? Do you talk to him? Is he part of your thinking throughout the day? Is there communion between you and him? And he knows what you need. And he's eagerly waiting to do good and to answer prayer. And you think that you're a better father than him, because he, but he's the best. He's the best. How much more will you, if you think you can give good gifts, how much more will your father who's in heaven give good goods, gifts to those who ask him? So we've talked about our religion before this holy God and God as our Father, but the last point here is God's gospel and example. God's gospel and example. If I could have the worship team come. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The power of our ability to, to live a religion that we're kind of touching on here is our it tied directly into us seeing him and seeing his gospel. It transforms us as, we, as we're looking to him, as we're seeing him, as we're beholding him, he is transforming our lives. He's transforming our hearts. He's making us different people. And this will lead us, this grace will lead and change your life and lead you to good works. I like this quote. It says, 
God's grace makes you just. The gospel is such that even though you're not saved by good works, you're saved by grace and faith, and it will change your life and lead you to good works. According to the Bible, if you really have been changed by the grace of God, it will move you toward the needy. It will move you. The grace of God will change the way you live and operate. If we think of ourselves as Christ followers, as followers of Jesus, just think of the people that are recorded that he spent time with. Think about, think about that filter of, would I spend time with this person? Would I like this person? Am I attracted to these people? Do I really, do the people at that time, do they care about these people? Jesus went to spend time and, and delivered the, the men with the demons in them. He healed various people who were defor- had all kinds of deformities and sicknesses. Lepers, he, he, he touched them, he talked with them, he spent time with lepers, people that you and I would get away from. Women at the time, men didn't associate with women. Jesus had women around him all the time he was fellowshipping with, he was hanging out with. Even some that had demons in them. A paralytic. He raised a widow's son from the dead. Prostitutes. Children. His disciples are saying, get away. He's, he's, he's busy right now with something important. He said, no, no, let them come to me. He cared about the kids. Fishermen. Nobody wanted to be around them. Tax collectors. Samaritans. He fed them, he touched them, spent time with them, went to parties with them, sent out 72 people to make sure that they got to hear the good news. That's, that's, that's our master. That's our master. And I have to ask myself, you know, who are the vulnerable people around me? Who are the, who are the people around me that nobody wants to spend time with? Who are the people around you? You know, like, Lord, please don't ask me to talk to that person. Please don't ask me to sit next to that person. Lord, that person smells. I would lose my reputation if I was hanging out with that person. Who's the tax gatherers around you? The lepers, the sinners. Who are the lonely people around you? Who's who's the people in your neighborhood that nobody talks to or on your job? Or at lunchtime, they sit by themselves. Co-workers, students. Who are the untouchables that Jesus loves? I think that's, that's what I have to wrestle with. Lord, I'm not like you. I don't want to be like that. But you want to be like that in me and through me. And so this is the religion that we want to pursue as a church. This is a religion that we want to pursue as individuals. We want to bring the life of Jesus Christ to those around us. Religion that is worthy is pure and undefiled. That's our point. Religion that is worthy is pure and undefiled. Let's pray.
Lord, I'm, I am so grateful to be with a group of people who, who want to be more and more like you. And not just some romantic, uh, feely good times, but, but they really want to be who you are and who you've called us to be. And Lord, we're, we're grateful because there's a stage of glory that you're bringing each one of us to. But we want to go from glory to glory. And we know it's not going to be by us. It's we, we know that you're going to use people around us. You're going to use your word. You're going to, by the power of your Holy Spirit, you're going to transform our mind. The fellowship around us is going to help us, Lord. We, we know that you're giving us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness. And we need that help. So we invite you, Lord, to come and fill us and change us and woo us and come back after us when we stray. Thank you for a robust forgiveness that keeps forgiving and washing us as white as the driven snow. But don't stop. Keep working, Lord. Work from the inside out, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.